morning. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to read verses 60 to 71. We have been in the book of John for a, a couple months now, and, and right now we are just, we finished up the account. This is right after the account of when Jesus, he makes bread for somewhere between five and, and 15,000 people most likely. He creates bread and he creates life where there was no life and he offers that to people and that was a bit of a parable to show them that he was offering them himself and yet he knew that they weren't seeking him for the right reasons and he corrected that and then and then we saw that that he showed his disciples that they were safe and secure in him when they were in the middle of a storm and he walks across the the water and he he steps in the boat and immediately they're on the other side safely because Jesus delivers them safely and yet when the people find out that Jesus is nowhere to be found, they go looking for him. They go looking for him. They find him in a, in a synagogue in Capernaum, what is now his hometown. And he gives them some hard words. And he told them, I'm the bread of life. You actually have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, I, I'm, so, I'm sure that some of them took that literally, but most of them got what he was saying and they struggled because it's hard to live as if Jesus is your life as if he is all you need. And so some of them were stumbled, and that's where we come in this passage today. In John 6, verse 60, this is God's holy inspired word for us. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Read that verse again. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus says to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and come to know that you are the only, the Holy One, the Son of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would help us understand and receive your hard words. Lord, I pray that we would not take offense at your words, but Lord, I pray that we would receive spirit and life. God, enable us by your spirit. Grant us, Father, that we might hear from you, speak to our hearts. Give us your life, your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a, a, a couple months ago, I think three months ago or so, I shared with all of our leaders uh, a couple of different statistics that I had been reading. The first one I shared was from back in March of 2020. The Barna Group, they had done a study. They published the results the first week of March when really all this coronavirus stuff was just about to really affect us dramatically. 
We were just beginning to shut down. hadn't yet really occurred widespread. And, and they reported a study from a few months earlier that they conducted, and they were gathering the results, and, and they finished, I think, the end of last year. And they, and they reported us some shocking statistics. They said the first and, and perhaps most significant change that they've seen in the last 19 years since 2000 when they last did a similar survey was that practicing Christians are now a, a much smaller segment of the entire population. And they said in 2000, 45% of those sampled qualified as practicing Christians. And then they said that share has significantly declined over the last 19 years. Now just one in four. Americans are practicing Christians. In essence, the share of practicing Christians has nearly dropped in half since 2000. And then something happened. Then trials happened. Difficulties in our country happened. Um, sh- things started to begin shaking. Um, the coronavirus made things locked down. It made things difficult. It made following Jesus even harder. It made it very challenging. Even for those who genuinely are following Jesus, it's hard right now sometimes to, to not lose focus and to follow Jesus. I think if you are awake, you will acknowledge that yourself. It's hard to continue to follow Jesus when things get difficult. And so since then, they did another survey in July. So six months at least after they had done the first one, three, four months after they published the last survey, they did another survey because they want to see how is this coronavirus affecting people? How is this, this trials that we're in, how is the upheaval in our country, how is it affecting people? And what they found was that one in three of those 25% from before, only one in three now practicing Christians is still and only attending their pre-COVID church, whether through in-person or through streaming. So now only 35% of that 25%. I'm not great at math, so you go figure that out. And then they found another 34% of that 25% from before admits to, well, we, we don't really go to church, but we stream we choose whatever service we feel like doing based on, on who's popular, who we enjoy. So we don't really attend our home church, but we attend multiple churches. We're church hopping right now. So a third, going to church, a third, kind of church hopping. And then the other third or so they found is not attending anywhere. What happened? Life got difficult. Life got challenging. Where will you go when following Jesus isn't easy? Where do people go? Where do people go when it's not easy to follow him, when there's challenges, when our preferences are confronted, when we have difficulties, when we have conflict, when we have problems, when we don't like the words of Jesus, where will we go? It's not a new phenomenon that it was experienced in that day. You see, in Jesus' day, in this one sermon alone, he went from crowds between 5,000 and plus, 15,000, who knows how many went over to Capernaum, but thousands likely to about 12. Jesus really knows how to grow a church, right? In his own day, with Jesus performing miraculous acts to attest to his authority in person and teaching, many people left. Jesus says, truly, truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink my blood, you'll have no life in you. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in him and in me and I in him. These are hard words. Now to us today, it might not seem like hard words because we're used to hearing this word of Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life and we have to drink of him, we have to eat of him. And, and we, we, we focus on that last Sunday, but what are we eating? What are we drinking? 
But these are hard words because they wanted someone who would be the Messiah they thought he should be, who would make their lives easy. They didn't want things difficult. He wanted, they wanted him to dominate their worldly enemies. They, they wanted him to give them social and political freedom. And, and Jesus refused to give them that kind of bread. He refused to even provide for all their earthly needs because he didn't want them to think he was that kind of Messiah. They want to see he actually provides for their ultimate need. And so they took offense. It was hard for them. Took offense. So look down at verse 60. It, 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 they, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Well, this is an offensive saying. Who can listen to it? You know, when I was younger, I, I remember a time that when my mom would talk to me, and I would just get so frustrated with her, and I didn't like what she was saying, and so I just put my hands on my ears, and that didn't go well. But I tried to block it out. You know, it's just, I don't want to hear it. It's too hard. I don't want to do it. No. And, and it's like they're doing this. They're, they're saying, this is hard. Who can listen to it? I'm not going to do that anymore. And so they take these hard words, and they refuse them. Instead of responding to them, instead of repenting, they respond and they leave. And it's evident what's hard is not what the followers of Jesus don't understand. It's, it's what they do understand that's hard to accept. What they, they do understand is that he is a different kind of Messiah. He didn't come to make their life easy, to give them everything they ever wanted. He came to give them eternal life. He came to transform their lives so that they're not living for those things. But it's hard to give up living for other things, right? It's hard to live as if Jesus is your bread. It's hard to eat of him alone. And they were offended by what he understood. They, they understood. They struggled with him telling them as the bread of life. There's no other way to live life than by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And, and maybe there were some who were also reviled over that idea of, of eating the flesh, drinking the blood. But I think that most of them probably understood. He, he was talking in metaphors. Many struggle with the idea that the eternal life is found only in him. Now, when we hear those words, we can say, like, sure, I know that. I, I know the eternal life is only found in him. But whenever we live life as if all of our hopes are in something else and we don't get that something else, it reveals where we're finding our life. They struggled with that idea. They were confronted with the straightforward truth that Jesus Christ, he is the essence of life. He is essential to life. He's the only one to satisfy hunger. He's the only one to quench our thirst. But when they encountered the hard things, these hard sayings, they said, who can listen to it? This is too hard. It's too hard to live that way. It's too hard to live by those words. The question is for us that what we encounter is how will we respond to these hard words? How do we respond? So if you're going to think of this message, this is kind of part three, if you will. How do we respond to the notion of Jesus says he is alone our life. He is alone our bread. Do we walk away from those passages that are difficult for us? Do we walk away from those places in Scripture that make us uncomfortable? Do we walk away from those Scriptures that, that are challenging to us? What do we do with those words? Or do we say, these are hard things, who can listen to it? How do we respond to those things that are hard in his word? Will we submit? Will we seek his help to understand and apply it? See, Jesus, it wasn't a surprise to him. He knew those things. And he, he, he was God incarnate. And so he says he knew in himself, in verse 61, that they were his disciples. And by the way, did you catch that? His disciples were grumbling. 
Now, this isn't the 12, but this is people who would, were devoted to following him. This isn't just the crowds. Now he's saying the disciples were grumbling. The people who had said they were committed to following him. The group that had probably been with him for a while, they're grumbling. And so he asked them a rhetorical question. So you take offense at this? Wait till you see me lifted up. And I, th- I think he was talking about not only going to heaven, but that interim period when, when how he would be lifted up, the means by which he'd go to heaven is by being lifted up onto the cross. They're offended by him. They're offended by his words because it's difficult to live as if Jesus is our only bread. You know, for Christians, we can agree with that statement and we think, well, that's not a hard saying at all. The idea doesn't seem to offend us, but accepting that idea and living as if he is our bread are two different things. It's a hard saying to live by. It's difficult for me to live as if Jesus is my bread. I have to acknowledge, it's difficult for me to live every day as if Jesus is my bread. Why? Well, I, I, when I don't get things and I get sad, disappointed, it reveals what I'm living for. When I fail or when I'm weak, how I respond to that failure or weakness, it reveals what's my bread. It reveals what I'm living for, what I'm relying on, what I'm hoping in. If I become despondent, I'm likely not living as if Jesus is my bread. When I don't get my way, anybody here have people that, you know, when you, when you encounter people, you don't get your way with them? You ever have that happen? When I don't get my way, when people in my life don't do things the way that I want them to, when I don't think they should respond like I think they should, how I respond and my emotions, they reveal what my bread is. How about you? When I see things in the country or society going away that, that I believe it's not good, it's not helpful, and I'm either anxious or angry in response, it reveals where I'm looking for bread. This is a hard saying. It reveals where I need to repent and live as if Jesus is my bread and all my hope. When I distract myself with entertainment or social media because I either fear doing something. You ever have this? You know what? I distract myself because I'm afraid of doing something or I think I'm going to fail at something, and so I distract myself because I think something may be hard, or, or, or the other hand, if I'm, I'm in social media and entertainment because I'm looking for affirmation from others, it can reveal where I'm looking for bread. In the past week, I, I was just thinking back, in the past week, I've had to ask God's forgiveness. Now, thankfully, I've already been forgiven, but I had to appropriate his forgiveness in all of these areas. Because I wasn't looking at him for bread. This is a hard saying. Nothing else will ever sustain us. In Scripture, keeps beating that drum because it's a fundamental temptation for every human to look to somewhere else or something else for hope because we are so easily distracted by false hopes and false gods. They'll never satisfy. They'll never meet our needs. I was thinking ever since the Garden of Eden, our first parents, they, they were given all they could ever want. All they ever could want for their utmost enjoyment and said, go to it, go enjoy. God says, I want you to walk with me and enjoy all the goodness of the life I give. And instead, they turned from God's provision. They turned from living by his word, his food, and they chose to try to be satisfied with this fruit of the forbidden tree. And we suffer from that same core desire. Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus told the devil when he was tempting him, one of the first temptations Jesus, the Son of Man, faces. Why is that? 
Why? Because he wants us to be able to say no to the original core temptations that, that we all have. So Jesus said no so that we can say no in him. Man should not live by earthly bread alone, but every word proceeds from the mouth of the Father. And guess what? John tells us Jesus is that word who comes down from the Father. He offered up his life in our place so we might live for him. Any other way of living is empty. And so Jesus tells them that when he confronts the fact that they're offended. And he tells them, he says, don't go anywhere else. You're offended at this. I want you to know something. My words are life and spirit, or spirit and life. He tells them the spirit gives life. The flesh is of no avail. Don't put any confidence in your flesh. Don't put any confidence in your ability. Don't put any trust in any earthly thing. He says this is what you need to live by. It's the spirit who gives life in verse 63. Look in your Bibles. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. And that too is offensive to them. Because they want to trust their own ability to come to them. They want to trust their own righteousness. They want to trust their own merits. He says, no, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, not what you do. The words that Jesus has spoken to us about his body and blood offered for us is our bread of life or how we receive the spirit and life. Are we receiving his, his spirit? Are we receiving his life? Are we receiving his words as the bread of life? Are you daily doing that? Are you, are you putting yourself in a place, in a practice where you are daily receiving his words of life so that you can receive spirit and life because we need the spirit, we need life. I don't know about you, but, but I lack the spirit at times and I lack life. Now, I don't mean that fundamentally I lack the spirit. I have the spirit placed inside of me. I've been born again. I have the spirit. But you know what? Um, I, I need to be filled with the spirit continually. How are we filled with the spirit continually? By receiving his words of spirit and life, feeding on him having that posture that Jeremiah had in, in Jeremiah 15, 16, when he said, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I'm called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. But people struggled. The crowds were walking away. They did not believe. And so Jesus says, but there's some of you who don't believe. Look in verse 64. It says, there's some of you who don't believe. And he knew from the beginning this wasn't a shock for, for him. Despite the fact that the words he had spoken to more spirit and life, not all who, re- who heard him received spirit and life. Now, for the disciples, for the 12, they had to be wondering, wait a minute, if your words which you've spoken are spirit and life, why do some not respond? And he tells them why. He says, it's, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. But Jesus already knew who would respond. He already knew the future, and he's sovereign over the future. And yet some, although he offered words of life and spirit, some did not believe his words. As you're reading this, you can think, okay, wait a minute. Will, will I believe those words? Do I believe those words? Do I believe his words are spirit and life? Jesus turns to his disciples after this. It says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. And then Jesus asked them a question, do you want to go away as well? You know, if you want to grow a group, if you want to build a big ministry, if you want to make a massive mega church, it's a great recipe. You tell them something easy. You tell them the things they want to hear. You tell people the things that agree with their perspective and support their politics, especially in America. 
you want to get people to follow you, give them what you want, meet their earthly desires for comfort, for ease, you'll have lots of people around you. If you want people to follow you, avoid telling them hard things. Make sure that you don't say anything that can be difficult for them or challenging to them. Don't challenge preconceived notions or expectations. But you know, that's not the kind of church Jesus builds. And if you want to know how to shrink a church, shrink a group of followers, Jesus knows how to do it. He says, when things get hard, when you have hard sayings from me, rely on me and me alone, and my words will be spirit and life. And that is challenging. He was pushing them because he wanted them to do something with the truth. He didn't want them to be comfortable. He wanted them to be truly comforted. Either they believe he's Messiah, the Son of Man, or trust him for eternal life, or they can choose to deny the truth, reject him, reject the life and hope that he offers. There is no third way. And so he explains that those who don't believe these powerful words, they... He says, this is why I told you nobody can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. Yes, we have an absolute responsibility to respond to his words of life, to repent and believe. At the same time, we see that he says no one comes unless it's granted. He does that for two reasons, both to help assure us that we're not thinking, oh, no, what happened? Were they not? He says they didn't come because, or they left because they're not really among us. In 1 John, John explains this further. It's also meant to be reassuring to us who have come to him that, that the Father has granted that. But look at verse 66. says, after this, many of his disciples, they turned back, they no longer walked with him. They didn't like that idea. They didn't like what Jesus had to say. They didn't like that the Father has to grant them the Son in order for them to come to him and respond in faith. It, it offends our pride. It offends our sense of fairness. People don't like to, for God to be in control because I want to be in control. People want to be in control. So instead they walk away instead of responding to Jesus and receiving life. And many people have and will walk away because of the hard things that Jesus says. Because he challenges our, our sensibilities and what we think is right. Many, we, many will walk away because Jesus challenges our hopes and expectations. Anybody here have any unmet hopes as a Christian? Raise your hand. Come on, seriously. You have unmet hopes as a Christian? When you In this life you have things that you were hoping in and those things are not met. Many will walk away from Christ because he does not conform to any of our political desires. I don't care where you're coming from. He will not conform. Or to desires for our nation. And then F.F. Bruce, I love the way he, he, he references this passage. He says, what they wanted, he would not give. What they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, what they needed, they would not receive. So often people want things from God, and he withholds those things because he doesn't want people to trust in things or people. He wants us to trust in him. The idea of denying ourselves, renouncing all trust in our ability, being willing to give up those things we think we need, trusting in Jesus as our bread, that's hard to receive. And from the account, it seems as if perhaps not many aside from the 12 were left. Many walked away. Many who were his disciples walked away. That should be shocking. And then Jesus goes, says to the 12 in verse 67, do you want to go away as well? He's not uncertain, but he wants them to confront the reality. He wants 
He wants them to make the choice. He wants to hear their commitment. He wants them to know who they're following. And the question for all of us is the same. Will we walk away from his words when they're difficult and demand trusting in him? And it appears, apparently nobody else gave a word back in return except for Peter. Either that or Peter was just kind of presumed. And so he spoke up for the whole group. And his words are a little presumptive. And he says, to whom shall we go? That's a question for each and every one of us, too. It's a, he asked it rhetorically, or he said that rhetorically, but I think it's a good question for all of us. To whom shall we go? Look in verse 68. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter doesn't stop at merely acknowledging the truth of who Jesus is. He's declaring emphatically they've come to a place of faith in Jesus, and they're remaining there. They believe. They know these things are certain. He has the words of life. He is the Holy One of God who's come down to give them these words of spirit and life. Jesus is declaring that, that, I mean, Peter's declaring that Jesus is on the same level as the Holy One of God, as the Holy One of Israel. He's not a mere man. He's the Holy One of God. This answer is excellent. It's inspired by the Spirit. It's an answer that we can have our lives anchored on. I wonder, though, if it could have been, maybe it's just me, if it could have perhaps appeared a little smug or pretentious, a little superior if, if Peter says, well, well, whom will we go? You have the words of life. Now, he's true. It's, it's very true. But notice how Jesus answers him in verse 7. Look down your Bibles in verse 70. Jesus answered them. Yes, Simon, we, we know that you believe and, and know and that you're trusting. That's good. He doesn't, doesn't denigrate that. But he helps just adjust a little. He says, did I not choose you, the 12? Yes, Peter, you believe. You know. You've chosen me. But, Peter, let, let me help you understand. Did I not choose you, the 12? And, and also, yet one of you is a devil. He affirms their choice to stick with him, but he reminds them that they're with him because he chose them, and that's actually meant to be comforting. He's clear that he chose them. They didn't choose him. They responded to his choice. They followed him, but he chose each of them to be his disciples. To believe, as Leslie Newbegin says, is to have been brought to the place where one knows that one has to rely completely on Jesus and on Jesus alone. I am daily challenged by that. How about you? Are you daily challenged by that to, to be brought to the place where you know that I have to rely completely on Jesus and Jesus alone? Uh, this is a daily challenge. I believe it's a daily challenge for all of humanity, for all Christians. Will we rely on him completely, on him alone? Every day when we wake up with those worries spinning through our head. Anybody here ever wake up that way? We got a thousand things spinning through your head? I guess I'm the only one. Thinking about your day and all the things you have to do. And, and, and the question is, will we rely completely on Jesus and on him alone? He has the words of eternal life. We have believed. And, and the good news is I believe that most people here have believed. If you have not yet believed, then let me encourage you. Jesus is confronting you. Will you follow him? He alone has the words of life. But if you've believed, here's what we've come to know. We can be certain that he is the Holy One of God. We can be certain his words are spirit and life. And he asks us, Will you go? 
He's not unsure. He's wanting our commitment. He's offering us spirit and life. He's saying, I don't want you to go anywhere else. Why would you go anywhere else? Why would you, why would you turn anywhere? In Peter's words of the Spirit's word, where shall we go? Every day, where shall we go? He is the words of life. He is the words of spirit and life. But there's a cost here. So many walked away because there was a cost involved in following him. There was a cost of remaining true to Jesus when all the others walked away. It meant following him when, when things are hard. It meant following him and being faithful, even when we don't fully understand what he has to say, when he does not agree with our agenda, when he does not agree with our politics, when he does not give us what we think we deserve and what we want, when, he, when he's in control and we're not, it's hard. There's a cost. The cost is real. It means remaining true, and if we discover there may be some who appear to follow him but will betray him. We continue with it, we can be reassured that all those who come to him are chosen by him. Where else will we go? It's a rhetorical question that Peter was asking, but it's a question I think we need to ask each and every day. Or maybe we could rephrase it and say, where else do we will to go? Do we desire to go? Each and every day, let's check our desires, check our wills. Where else are we tempted to go for bread? If we're honest, all of us are tempted. Here's the good news. No matter whether we turned away or gone away, no matter if you've never turned to him, or if you're tempted to go right now, no matter where we failed or been weak, there is hope, hope to turn away from false gods, hope to turn away from lesser hopes and desires, and ultimate fulfillment is found in him. What do we do? We seek forgiveness. We ask him. We say, Jesus, I want to renounce all other ways. I want to renounce living for myself. I want to renounce living this way. I want to see that I've, I do have a need for you, and, and I realize that I've sinned against you, so I deserve your wrath. And so I want to repent. I want to believe, place my faith in you, and I'll receive your life. Now, for me, I try to do something every day, and I don't always, but I try to do something every day. It's called preaching the gospel to myself every day. I stole that from an old guy who died a few years ago named Jerry Bridges. Because only he has the words of eternal life, and I need those words of life every day. Only he has the words of eternal life. Not just life in eternity, but eternal, lasting life. Real life springing up from the eternal life of the Father sent and the Son given to us so we might have this ever-living wellspring of life within us. And if you're not experiencing that ever-living wellspring of life, you need to say, okay, why not? What am I looking to? Am I frustrated? Something I'm not getting? Oh, I'm looking somewhere else for life. Let me, look, let, me, let me return. He has the words of life. He has spirit. He has life. Am I disappointed? Am I discouraged? Oh, what, what am I looking to? Where's my hopes? Where's my longings? Am I fearful? Am I anxious? Oh, let me, let me look back at his words of life. What am I feeding on is his spirit and his life is what I need. And his life enables us to do hard things. His life is an eternal well springing up within us, enabling us to glorify him and shine forth his life in all that we do. His life watering our weary and dry souls and causing fresh hope for life to sprout. His life inspiring us in our workplace, inspiring us in homes and schools and our neighborhoods and in community. Acts 5, it gives an account of living that way. You see, the disciples, they had been preaching the good news in the temple, and they Tons of people were responding, and they were, they were doing miracles, and people were bringing people out to the streets so that even if, if Peter is walking by, his shadow would fall on them, and they were, they were getting healed, and, and people were responding to the good news. And so the Pharisees, the, the, the teachers of the law, they were intimidated by this. 
So in Acts 5, 17, it says, But the high priest rises, rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles, and they put them in the public prison. The apostles were uh, arrested for proclaiming the gospel, healing the sick by the power of God, for trusting in his life, for living as if Jesus is life. But I love the story. It continues in, in Acts 5.19. It says, the angel of God, he frees them from prison. He tells them to go back to what they're doing. And I love what he told them. He says in Acts 5.19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. And there's a picture really of how God opens our prison doors. This is something really happened. This is not an allegory, but boy, it's, it gives us a picture of things. The angel of the Lord opens the prison doors, brought them out and says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people. He puts it this way. He doesn't say, go speak to the people of the gospel. Go tell them the good news. No, he says something else. He says, go and speak to the people all the words of life. Go and speak to the people all the words of this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Speaking all the words of life was their mission because all of their life was found in Jesus' words. All the words of this life. All the words of gospel, all the words of living of faith in Jesus Christ, all the words of this life of Jesus, the bread of life, that's what we've been given. That's what we've been sent to teach. That is what our life, Jesus, the bread of life, came down from heaven so we might eat of his life. And he ascended to heaven again so we might hope in his life. You know, if I was going to wrap up the whole thing and say, what's the main idea of this whole passage? It's, it's really simple. It'd just be, Jesus has the words of life. Will we come to him? Where else will we go? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would turn to no other place. God, I pray that where you have brought conviction, where you brought illumination, Lord, you would enable us to respond to you. Father, I pray that where we are fearful, we would see that those things that we fear, we don't need to fear because you have life, nothing else has life, and you will never take your life away from us. You will never remove your spirit from all those who received your spirit. We've been born again, never to be unborn. Father, I pray that you would quiet our fears, quiet our anxieties. God, I pray for those of us who are tempted to give up, that you would help us see that you have life and spirit. Nothing else is life and spirit. No other person, no other place, no other thing, no other religion, no other philosophy, no other method of living has life and spirit, but you do. God, for those of us who are trusting in our flesh, I pray we see the flesh has no avail. Let's trust in your spirit and life. God, I pray for all of us who, who have turned or attempted to turn to other places for bread, for life, that we would turn away from those things and we would confess that. Lord, we've been angry or frustrated. Lord, I pray we would confess that and find life and spirit anew. Lord, would you encourage us that you have given us your spirit. You have given us your life. You've given us the same spirit by your word that raised Jesus from the dead that dwells in us. Lord, make us alive. You've made us alive. Lord, enliven our spirits today. Enliven our minds to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand aside.